Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. We're going to kick off today with some music. This is Mike Zito featuring Kid Anderson and the song is Late Blossom. Story 
show is sponsored by Guy Hale, author of the Comeback Trail trilogy featuring Jimmy Wayne. Wickedly funny novels about a singer-songwriter forced to kill in order to write his best music. Jimmy travels from obscurity in the Nevada desert to fame and fortune around the world. But are there enough bad guys out there to satisfy Jimmy's quest for fame? The Comeback Trail trilogy was inspired by an idea from musician Mike Zito, and the first book, Killing Me Softly, is accompanied by an album also called Killing Me Softly, the music of Jimmy Wayne. The song you just heard, Late Blossom, comes from that album. If you want to know more about Guy Hale's The Comeback Trail, or the music of Mike Zito featuring Kid Anderson, click the link on the program notes, and that'll take you to Guy Hale's website, and you can buy both the music and the books there. So hello again, and welcome to the Crime Time FM September Review Show. I'm Paul Burke, and I write about crime fiction. And once again, there are some great reads this month, with titles from across the genre. I'm going to start with a classic reissued. This is the second Celia Dell novel published by Daunt, and Sheep's Clothing is nothing short of a masterpiece of literary psychological drama. Those who think it all began with The Girl on the Train should take a look at maybe Margaret Mitchell or Cecilia Fremlin, and certainly Sheep's Clothing from Dale. This was originally published in 1988. This is the story of Grace and Janet. They met inside, and now out of Holloway, Grace has a plan and Janice is a key part of her con game. They worm their way into pensioners' homes, claiming to be from the DHSS, offering a little extra money in tough times. The novel opens with a widow falling for their patter. As a reader of dark, violent mysteries, you might think this light fair, but my hackles were up the moment they hoodwinked Mrs. Davis. The local police are equally incensed, and a cat-and-mouse game ensues. Naturally, things go very wrong, and there are bad consequences. The relationship between the two women is sorely tested. It's a simple tale with a clever plot, but what elevates it is character. We come to understand Grace and Janice better, while still feeling for the victims, of course. The psychological portraits are rich, and Grace is a phenomenal creation. How did we get here? What brings the two ordinary women to this point? It's poignant, shocking, and gripping. The strands of the story coalesce beautifully. Dell wrote 13 novels beginning with the least of these in 1943. This surely is among the best of her work, subtle, consummate storytelling. Available now in paperback. Outback Noir Now from Peter Papathanasu, and apologies if I got the name wrong, Peter. The Pit is published in hardback and other formats by Maclose Press, and is available now. This is the third novel from Papathanasu, following 2021's noirest of noirs, The Stoning, and last year's The Invisible, which cleverly brought Detective Sergeant Manolis from Western Australia back to northern Greece, the home of his forebears, to explore an off-the-books missing persons case. It gave us a view of Euro-noir that we don't normally see. In this third book, Manolis is still on leave in Europe, so Senior Constable Sparrow, that's Robert Cooper, is in charge. It's 2017. 
Sparrow gets a call from Bob confessing to a murder 30 years earlier. Bob is 65 and living in a care home. He wants to clear his conscience. He says he's dying. There are rules to this confession, though. Bob will take Sparrow to the body, but it's in the Kimberley Mining District up north. Bob can't fly, and he wants his pal Luke to come along with them on the road trip that ensues. Wondering what Manolis would do, Swallow agrees to that unusual road trip, and the trio set off. It's a story about roots and identity, touching on racism, sexism and homophobia. Sparrow is a cop transporting a would-be prisoner, but is Bob really going to show him the body, or is there something else going on here? The relationship between the three men changes dramatically along the way. It's a touching and relevant story with depth and heart. Along the way, Bob tells his story, and is thoroughly engrossing. This is also about the land, and Papathonisu acknowledges that that belongs to the first inhabitants, as custodians. The history and landscape infuse this story. There's a lot of outback noir out there, but this is absolutely top-notch. No Reserve by Felix Francis is the latest in the long-running Racing World series kicked off by his father Dick with Dead Cert way back in 1962. This time it's a tale of corruption and skullduggery at the October yearling sales at Newmarket. Big money changes hands for unnamed, untested horses based on breeding. This struck a chord because it reminded me of my favourite Dick Francis. The first, in fact, I think I read, which was Banker, and that one was published back in 1982. This is the story of Theo Jennings, however, and he's an auctioneer. He overhears two bidders colluding to fix the price of a horse up for sale. The next morning, the horse is dead. Theo takes his suspicions to his boss, but no one really wants to open this can of worms. Theo won't drop it, though. He pursues his own investigation and is soon in really hot water. There are side stories, the usual fascinating insight into the world of racing, and all with a light, not exactly cosy, touch that the series has always had. An easy, engaging read for fans of fireside crime fiction. Published in hardback and other formats by Zaffrey. A proper page-turning spy thriller now from Ava Glass, called The Traitor. The follow-up to the CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger shortlisted The Chase, originally titled Alias Emma. I think this must have been inspired by Gareth Williams, the spy whose body wound up in a holdall. But Glass has developed a whole new scenario a man murdered and left in his flat in a suitcase. Emma Makepeace is pulled off her current assignment to investigate. Stephen Garrick worked for MI6. He was following Andrei Volkov, but the investigation into the arms dealer was closed, so it was all off the books. Emma has to go undercover in Volkov's world to find out if he killed Garrick, and if Volkov and Russian arms dealer Oleg Fedorov have a live operation that MI6 missed. Once undercover, Emma is on her own. There are questions about a mole within the agency. Emma's life is on the line, and the hunter is hunted. Like the chase, this is great escapist fun. Gripping and thrilling. A perfect beach read if you're going for that late summer sun. Published by Penguin in paperback. I suppose it sounds obvious, but for me, second novels are often a better test of the series' staying power than the first. The character is settled for a start. So, I enjoyed The Medici Murders by David Hewson, in which British archivist in Venice... Arnold Clover helps solve the murder of a hideous TV celebrity historian, brilliantly named Marmaduke Godolphin. The second volume is the Borgia portrait, and this time Clover is helping Lizzie Hawker claim her family inheritance. Her mother, an Italian countess, disappeared decades ago, and her English music producer father has just died. A local man is scheming to take the family palazzo, claiming it was left to him. This ratchets up when a body is found in the crypt of the palazzo, 
Casanova, and an erotic portrait of Lucretia Borgia commissioned by her brother, feature in a puzzle that unfolds across the city's lesser-known quarters, reveling in a dark history. The novel opens with the line, Venice is never short of stories. Every street has a tale to tell, every stone a ghost. This novel is evocative of Serenissima and its fascinating history. A fast-paced and involving mystery, perfect for fans of a puzzle with humour and mystery. The dilapidated palace is a perfect backdrop to the story, and Clover is really coming into his own. And Lizzie's family has secrets that really grab our attention. David Hewson's love of Venice and history shine out, and this is a really entertaining read. Published in hardback by Seven House. All That's Left Unsaid by Tracy Lean is an altogether darker book. Then again, you have to like a book that's won the Mud Literary Prize. And this is also the winner of the Australian Indie Book Award for debut fiction. And honestly, it's not hard to see why. Keetran's younger, naive brother, Denny, goes out one night to celebrate his high school graduation with some friends at a local restaurant. This is in the Sydney suburb of Cabramatta, a restaurant called The Lucky Eight. Despite the restaurant being full, when Denny is beaten and stomped to death, there are no witnesses. There's a wall of silence. Key returns for Denny's funeral. Her Buddhist Vietnamese parents are stoic about their loss. The police seem uncaring and certainly clueless. Everybody seems to want to blame it on local trouble, on drugs, and of course on Denny himself. Key of course won't have that. She investigates for herself, tracking down the people in the restaurant. Lean explores casual racism, cliches in cultural identity, and integration in a searing novel of modern Australia. It's heartrending and certainly unflinchingly perceptive. A dark but rewarding read. An extraordinary debut that deserves to be widely read. Like the American author Steph Char, Lean, or should that be Lien, tells a universal story. Published by HQ in paperback. And sticking with Australia, we have The Torrent by Danuka McKenzie. It's out in paperback and ebook from Canelo Crime. It's also an award winner, including the 2020 Banjo Prize. McKenzie has Sri Lankan Australian roots and was identified by Craig Sisterson as one to watch in his Southern Cross Crime Guide to Australian New Zealand crime fiction a couple of years ago. The Torrent doesn't disappoint. DS Kate Miles is heavily pregnant, about to sign off duty, and frankly, it can't come quick enough. The usual bullshit and sexism prevail in the police force, and there's been a violent hold-up at the local fast food outlet. As Kate investigates, she's shadowed by the new guy, but rather than talk to her, her boss is talking directly to her deputy. One of the young workers has attacked, and she's the daughter of a local councillor. And of course, he's being treated with kid gloves. Meanwhile, a few months back, a flood devastated the community. Five people died. The officer in charge declared them all accidental. But Kate is asked to informally review one of the deaths, and things are not as straightforward as it seems. And Kate finds the case leading back to her own family past. This is a really involving and relevant story, and Mackenzie comes at it from an original angle. And it's pacey. More like this we could do with. I read The Man Who Didn't Burn by Ian Moore a while ago, and I've been dying to tell you about it. Sometimes the best reads are the ones you're not familiar with and you're not expecting too much of, and that's a pleasant surprise. Ian Moore is a comedian performer who's written a cosy-ish series, Follett Valley, including books like Death and Croissants, and that's not quite to my taste. But of course, it's all about the quality of the writing. And this is the opening of a new series featuring Juge d'Instruction, Mathieu Lombard and it's set in the Loire Valley. From the first chapter where expat Graham Singletary is brutally murdered, and his charred, undead body is left on a hillside to be found, which is quite gruesome, this is a surprising and truly entertaining mystery. It's not a cosy as you can imagine, and that first scene certainly gets imprinted on your mind. So imagine what it does to the girls who find him. The rural community is shocked, and the case falls to Juge Lombard, who is half English, 
He's also incredibly inquisitive and digs beyond the police inquiry. All the while his mother, who to say the least is a maverick, is accusing the police of brutality when she gets arrested at protests. As Lombard investigates, it seems that the residents of saint genez sur loire hold grudges and secrets, and may even know more about Singletary's death than they're prepared to let on. What's it all got to do with Joan of Arc? And who wanted not only to kill Singletary, but to punish him? Moore has finely drawn colourful characters. There's a dark tint here, of course, but plenty of humour, some of it revolving around that English-French rivalry. Lombard is a likeable detective, with a good sense of the absurd in life. This is storytelling that makes the reader very comfortable, and that's incredibly enjoyable. Published by Duckworth in hardback. I had to work a bit harder on the next novel, and of course that's no bad thing. This is The Kill Show by Daniel Sveran Becker, out in paperback from Hodder and Stoughton. True crime is a kind of fiction. The cases are real, of course, but the writing of it gives it a viewpoint and a praise, and it's narrative, not truth. It's sometimes sensational, often biased and manipulated by the participants. Sveran Becker is a TV writer and playwright in L.A., and he also writes young adult novels. But this is his adult debut. The story is told in interviews around a reality crime TV show that looks at the disappearance of a young girl ten years ago. 16-year-old Sarah Parcell vanished one April morning in Frederick, Maryland. The town is captivated, shocked and divided. The scars remain. The show deals with the witnesses, the family and the friends, the law officers, the search, the media frenzy, scandal, the reckoning and the aftermath. And slowly, what happened to Sarah emerges through testimony, obfuscation, lying, self-protection, denial, dysfunction. What Swearen Becker is interested in is how TV and media change the story by being present. Why true crime fascinates us, our motives, distortions and perceptions. Ultimately, the story works within the context of a novel about a show about a crime and is insightful of modern society, violence, greed, obsession and ambition. An uncomfortable but relevant read. Everybody Knows by Jordan Harper and this has to be one of my books of the year, and I'm pretty sure other critics are going to be saying exactly the same thing. Last year's The King of California was a gripping and powerful read, but this ups the game. If you love S.A. Cosby, this should be right up your alley. As with The Last King of California, the book starts in fire, an indelible image of a city on fire, as someone is torching homeless camps. This is L.A., Hollywood. They invented noir, and now they live it. May Pruitt is a black bag publicist. She deals in crisis PR, making sure the bad news never hits the headlines. It's beginning to occur to her that this is a dirty way of making a living, and then her boss is gunned down in the street outside the Beverly Hills Hotel. Together with her crooked cop, ex-boyfriend Chris, May is drawn even deeper into the belly of the beast. City of dreams more like city of nightmares. The damaged and the destroyers, the murderers, corrupt cops and the innocents that are their prey inhabit these streets. Honestly, this has the pace of a wildfire. Glamour is a veneer. Sex, drugs, corruption and untouchable power are all at the heart of this mystery. The City of the Damned. The question is, will Chris and May submit or seek redemption? Dirty, dark, cold-blooded, brutal, pessimistic and truly powerful. This will burn your fingers and singe your heart. Published in paperback by Faber. And finally, my wildcard pick. Before it all went rotten, the music that rocked London's pubs, 1972-1976, by Simon Matthews. This book quickly disabuses us of the idea that punk followed glam rock. Pub rock sits in that crossover. So the book also looks at how the 60s suddenly became the 70s. I grew up on punk, but like all teenagers, I thought everything that came before was rubbish. We invented relevant music. 
And then slowly as you get older, you realize that's not true. And you go looking through those earlier eras here. So we find out that Pomp Rock and its bloated existence sparked a kickback before the Pistols and the Damned came along. Pub Rock was the first step to punk. Brinsley Schwartz, Ducks Deluxe, Slack Alice, Eddie and the Hot Rods, Kilburn and the High Roads, Graham Parker and the Rumor, the 101ers, Dave Edmonds, and Dr. Feelgood, of course. Their histories are covered here. Matthews has put together an entirely readable account of the origins and period of pub rock. He gives us a sense of the excitement and dynamism of the period, and a taste, for those of us who weren't there, how important in the history of music pub rock was. Not many were into it at the time, but we all benefited from this brief but influential musical interlude. Makes me a little bit jealous that I wasn't at the Hope and Anchor one of those nights when, when pub rock was at its best. Published by Old Castle in paperback. One for anybody who cares about the history of music. Well, that's it for this month. I hope there's something there that you like, something that will take your fancy. I'll be back with another selection next month, but in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>